We are looking at 1 Peter 4. We're rounding out this chapter as we just read a moment ago, verses 12 through 19. So if you haven't, open there and follow along. It was a hot summer day on July 19th. And what started as a single spark soon erupted into a raging inferno. For nine days, a fire ripped through the entire city of Rome and destroyed most of it. The people suspected Nero, and for good reason. Nero was partly responsible, but Nero was also crazy. Now, I don't say that lightly. He he really was. One secular historian said that Nero was, quote, a murderous pervert with disgusting inclinations. I will spare you the details of Nero's life. But as the fire was burning, Nero did, instructed his soldiers not to put out the fire, and in other places, in other accounts, he actually encouraged them to start new ones. And so the city burned. The historian Tacitus said that at night, as the city was aglow with the flames, Nero, quote, stood in his tower and watched gleefully, charmed with the loveliness of the flames. Well, when it was all over, Nero didn't want to be responsible. So he decided to shift the blame. And Nero pointed his finger squarely at the Christians. Which, for his part, was probably a smart move. People didn't know what to do with these Christians. Many assume they must be politically subversive because they will not say that the emperor is Lord. They insist that this guy named Jesus is Lord. And so Nero, by blaming them for this fire, he gave himself a license to essentially exterminate Christians. And Nero was was quite good at it. Tacitus wrote that he, quote, carried out the most exquisite tortures on the Christians. He threw some into the famous Colosseums to be maimed and killed by gladiators. He used some, as you may know famously, as human torches to light his garden parties. As barbaric as it sounds, he even took some while they were still alive. He took the Christians and had them sewn inside of animal carcasses, and then fed to lions and bears. Now imagine being a Christian in that year, 64, 80. Imagine hearing the rumor spreading of what's happening in Rome. Maybe you don't live in Rome, but you do live in the Roman Empire. And word is swirling about of of what's happening and what may be coming and what's taking place. And the threat is getting closer and closer. And you start to get a little worried to, to, to realize what may happen to yourself or to your wife or to your family or to your pastor. And your church is, is awaiting, your, your little flock is awaiting to hear word from the leadership. What, what do we do? Knowing this is coming our way, do we run? Do we hide? Do we fight? Well, eventually, word does come to your little church. 
And it's not just from a church leader, it's from an apostle. And of all apostles, it's the apostle of the apostles. It's Peter. And Peter gives you a one-word answer. It isn't to run. It isn't to hide. It isn't to fight. His instruction is rejoice. Rejoice in suffering. To some people, that sounds crazier than anything that Nero ever did. Rejoice in your sufferings? That's exactly what the apostle is going to tell us, as he told the original Christians in 1 Peter chapter 4, 12 through 19. You may remember in our previous study at the end of chapter 3, the end of chapter 3 was hard to understand. I'm going to be honest with you, the end of chapter 4 is really easy to understand, but really hard to do. It's really hard to obey. But obey this passage we must. Peter calls us, even though we could probably all think of a thousand reasons why we shouldn't rejoice in suffering, and why we couldn't rejoice in suffering, Peter's going to set before us four reasons why we must rejoice. Rejoice in suffering. We may not be encountering this kind of suffering in our own day-to-day life, but who knows, it might be coming. And for those that we send abroad, that go into to, to zones where this is much more common, even as we're sending one out today, this should remind us of what to pray for and what to consider for them. Four reasons in our text why we should rejoice in suffering. The first one comes to us in verses 12 and 13. Peter tells us, number one, rejoice because suffering for Christ is normal. Rejoice because suffering for Christ is normal. Notice what he says, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Notice the first word there in verse 12. He uses the word beloved. That's that New Testament word of affection that was often used. It's a reminder that not only was this church, or not only were these believers beloved and loved by, by Peter, it's also a reminder that they are loved by God which is a great place to start in this passage. Why? Because let's be honest, when trials come and difficulties come, isn't it easy to think that God doesn't love you? Isn't it easy to assume that, boy, I must have done something wrong? God must be out to get me. God must be angry with me. But Peter reminds them here, listen, even though suffering may come, yes, he's basically saying, you may get betrayed and you may get beheaded, but you will always be beloved. So don't let the world's hate make you doubt God's love. You are beloved, Peter says. And so he says, because you're beloved, notice he says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Some scholars think that may be a literal reference to Nero's pyromania that I mentioned earlier. The fiery ordeal. 
If it wasn't, if Peter wrote this before Nero, which is, which is possible, then his wording is providential, wasn't it? Because a huge fiery ordeal was months away for them. P- Peter's not specific what he means here by this fiery ordeal, but throughout the book, if you've noticed, he's mentioned everything of these Christians being slandered, reviled, insulted, mistreated, mocked, threatened, harmed, and intimidated. And each flame of persecution has created a bonfire of suffering. But Peter is clear this bonfire is not a wildfire. In other words, it's not burning out of control. Peter says, notice in verse 12, it has come upon you for your testing. So this is a fire, but it's a controlled burn. It is sovereignly controlled by God. He knows the extent, he knows the temperature, he knows what's coming, and he's allowed this to come on you, come on to you for a testing and a reason. It's the Old Testament imagery of a refiner's fire. Remember in the Old Testament, God often said that his people would be put into the fire, and what? That, that heat would, would draw out the impurities. They, they would pull it away. The process is called smelting. I said it to one of my kids. I said, Peter's saying that God is smelting the church. He said, smelling the church? I said, no, no, smelting the church. It means to purify it through this, this intense heat. And Peter has said, don't you remember the prophets all said this? He's borrowing that same language. Zechariah promised this. The psalmist promised this. Malachi promised this. He's, he's reminding them. And so it's as if, with all of that in mind, Peter says, the Old Testament has said over and over and over again, the refiner's fire is coming. So he says, don't be surprised. Why are you shocked? The, the whole Old Testament told us this was coming. It's literally here, stop being shocked, as if he heard they were freaking out, and Peter says, knock it off. This is par for the course, he says. He says, as though, look at verse 12, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Now, I think this is further proof that these believers he's writing to are Gentiles. If anybody knows, feels that persecution was normal, you know who it was? It was the Jews. Right? Their whole history was one of persecution. But these Gentiles, they signed up for Jesus, and all of a sudden this starts happening. They're losing friends and losing their jobs, and things are tough. And they go, wait a minute, where did this come from? And Peter's trying to show them that the story of persecution and suffering that was Israel's story is now your story. Because we are descendants of Abraham if we are those that have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says there, This is what you signed up for, 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ. Peter says, don't be surprised. You signed up to follow Jesus, right? And they say, yes. And he says, well, Jesus suffered. So if Jesus suffered and you're following Jesus, then it's normal then to realize that you're going to suffer as well. In one sense, you can think of following Christ here like, like water skiing. Right? If the boat goes through choppy waters, guess what? The skier will too. Wherever the boat goes, that's where the skier goes. Well, if Christ went through the choppy waters of suffering and insults and hardships and persecution, and if we are tethered to him by faith, then we're going to go through those same choppy waters. 
And he's saying here, it is totally normal then to share or to koinonia, there's that word there, to koinonia in the sufferings of Christ. To be part of that. It's, it's the way of Christ, so it's the way of his children. Now, understandably, our first impulse is to like, ooh, is kind of reject that. But Peter says, instead of recoiling, why not try rejoicing? He says, to the degree that you serve, verse 13, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Peter's sort of saying here, think, think of suffering right now, the hardships like now, think of them like choir practice, right, or band practice, right? If you're, if you're in like a middle school band or a choir or something like that, what, what do you do? Every day you go to practice, what do you do? You practice, you sing the songs and you go through the same, why? Because you're getting ready for the, for the big day. Right, the concert, the cantata, the program, end of school, whatever it is, right? You're doing all the practicing here day after to get ready for the big day. Peter says, Do you understand that the big day is coming? The big day of rejoicing is coming. That big day is ahead of us when Christ will return and Christ will appear. And so he says, To get ready for the big day, start rejoicing now. Start celebrating his goodness, his kindness now. Which sounds a lot like James. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith is producing something. By the way, if you're here and you're not a Christian, let me be clear about this. We don't, Christians do not get happy about suffering. And what I mean, Christians aren't masochists. We get happy about what God is doing through our suffering. That's what Peter's getting at here. So he's saying, yes, I understand it's a fiery ordeal. It, it will be difficult even as Christ went through this. Peter says suffering may be painful, but understand it's also normal. If you are suffering for Christ, it means you are in the right crowd, you're going in the right direction, and you are following the right Savior. You're going the right way, he says. It's totally normal because that is the way of Christ. Therefore, it is the way of Christ's people. So don't be surprised. It's just par for the course. The author of Hebrews talked about this. If you remember at the end of Hebrews chapter 11, um, he describes that hall of faith and he describes, he sort of runs out of room and so he kind of lumps a bunch of things together and talks about those that followed Christ in faith and he says some of them experienced mockings and scourgings and chains and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskin and goatskin, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. That was the life of faith. And so the author of Hebrews will, will say, not just let's read about the cloud of witnesses. The author of Hebrews says, let's join the cloud of witnesses. Realize this is part of it. And that it actually is normal to follow Christ. Historically and globally, suffering as a Christian is the rule. It's not the exception. This is our heritage. This is what it is to follow Christ. And I think for us, it is a great reminder, as we've even said already, that the freedoms that we enjoy, particularly, and have enjoyed as believers in America, it is unprecedented. 
in church history. Unprecedented. There may come a day when we get rejected even more, when we get restricted and we get restrained, but Peter says that's why we better get to rejoicing now. Rejoice in your suffering. Now, I'm not looking forward to full-blown persecution if it comes our way in our lifetime, but I do know this. If and when it does come in our lifetime to this degree that Peter is talking about here, listen, when that moment comes and if we get, find ourselves being thrown into prisons and into dungeons and into gulags, I know this. When we walk through those chained doors, there will be Chinese and Sudanese Christians with their arms outstretched saying, it's about time. What took you guys so long? We've been waiting for you. Don't be surprised, Peter says. Like something strange has happened. This is the way of, of following Christ. If you want a great book on the topic, I would encourage you to read The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin. It will almost make you embarrassed by how easy we've got it in America. The Insanity of God. That's the first reason it's normal. Number two, Peter tells us, rejoice because suffering for Christ is also a privilege. We rejoice because it's normal. It means we're going the right way, following the right Savior, going in the right direction. But he also says it's a privilege. Notice verse 14. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. P Peter is quite clear. Listen, like retool your thinking. Peter says if you're, if you're suffering is the direct result of your allegiance to Christ, it's a privilege. Count it an honor, he says. He's practically quoting here from Matthew 5.11, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said what? Blessed are you when people insult you and say all kinds of false things against you for my namesake. Because you identify with the name of Christ and you and I get ridiculed or insulted or reviled, he says, then blessed are you? It's literally happy are you. Earlier in the book, Peter talked about various trials, but I want to make this clear. In these verses here, he is laser focused on suffering because of your allegiance to Christ. There's a difference between being a Christian who suffers and being someone who suffers as a Christian. See the difference in those two? We all are over here. Some of you are right there right now. But that's not what Peter's, Peter's specifically talking about. You're suffering because of your witness, because of your faith, because of what you say and do at the dinner table with your extended family or in your workplace that you refuse to do or won't do, whatever that might look like. That's what he's talking about. He says it's a privilege. He says if you are reviled for the name of Christ. Peter was on both sides of this story, you remember. Remember Mark 16? He would not associate with the name of Christ. I don't know that man. Three times, I don't know him. And then Acts chapter 4, after the resurrection, what does he say? I know him. And I'm proud to know him. And you can do with me what you want, but I will not be ashamed to identify with him. And Peter says, likewise, we should be willing to, to be insulted for the name of Christ because he says, you are blessed. Now think about this. This is the upside-down, inside-out way of the kingdom. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Peter says to suffer 
is to flourish. See, many people think that the the worry-free, stress-free, carefree life, man, that's the key to happiness. But they go down that path and they never are satisfied. And Peter says, actually, suffering is not the opposite of blessing. Suffering is actually the pathway to blessing. It's the way in which you get there. And that's not because suffering is good. It's because Christ is good. And the way of Christ is good. And to show the value of Christ over all else is the pathway of true, deep, personal satisfaction. Some of us don't know this because we've not had the courage to actually go down that path. We've tried to have it both ways. In what way are we blessed? Notice what Peter says in 14. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Do you see that? The spirit of glory and the spirit of God rests on you. He says, when you suffer for the name of Christ, you're proving that you're walking by the spirit. It proves that the spirit is guiding you and leading you in your path. Peter loves the book of Isaiah. I said earlier in our study, and here he is drawing from Isaiah chapter 11. There's a verse where Isaiah said, when the Messiah comes, it says, quote, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. If you remember in Jesus' first sermon at his hometown of Nazareth in the synagogue, he read that text, Isaiah 11, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to declare you know, uh, uh, freedom to the captives, to give sight to the blind. He reads that whole text, and then what does Jesus say? His whole sermon was, I'm here. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the one Isaiah talked about. And he's saying, the Spirit of God himself rests upon me. Well, Peter takes that verse now one step further and says, if people are mistreating you for the name of Christ, he says, look and understand, the same spirit which belonged to him also belongs to you. Some people today are looking for the Holy Spirit to give them an out-of-body experience. But Peter says, we should be looking for the in-body experience of suffering. That shows you have the Holy Spirit. That he's guiding you and leading you to so boldly identify with Christ. And he wants nobody confused. So verse 15, he clarifies. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Let's be clear. Not all suffering is approved by God. Right? Not all suffering is God's will. Sometimes we suffer because of our bad choices. And he says, if that's the case, you deserve it. If you're breaking the law and you're doing something you shouldn't, if you're not submitting to government, as he ta- he says, and, and there's consequences to that, that's on you. You should be ashamed of that, is really what he's saying here. Be ashamed, he says. So he says here, but make sure that you're not among that group, verse 16, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, that man should not be ashamed. You can almost see a row of guys sitting in a jail cell, and one guy says, what are you in for? First guy says, Murder. Second guy says, burglary. The other guy says, fist fighting. And they look down the road and say, what are you here for? And he says, preaching. What? Peter says, if you're going to be in that group, be sure you're the last guy. Don't, Don't let those other things be on your rap sheet. But if this is the thing that lands you in prison, you have nothing to be ashamed of. Nothing to be embarrassed of. Peter says, make sure, he says, but he is, verse 16, to glorify God in this name. What name? In the name of Christian. 
By the way, Christian wasn't originally a compliment. It was a kind of a derogatory name uh, given to those at Antioch in Acts chapter 11, but we kind of embraced it saying, yeah, we're, we don't mind identifying with Christ in that way. So rather than being embarrassed, he says, glorify God in that name, in the name of Christian. Today, there may be other forms of that. The word Christian does have some baggage in our culture today. We have other terms like evangelical, fundamentalist, Bible thumper. Not long ago, my wife and I were watching a TV show, and there was this good, this good guy on the show, and he was squeaky clean, the moral guy, you know, one of those characters, and he was a man of faith. They kept talking about he was a man of faith, and they were all talking about him, and, and, and most of the show, I liked the guy, right? Because he was, he was a man of conviction, all this kind of stuff, and then at one point, somebody asked him about his faith, and he says, well, I'm a Christian, and the guy looked at him kind of strange, and he says, oh, but I'm not one of those born-again Christians. What other kind of Christian is there? Like, there's not. Jesus said, unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom, Right? So if someone were to call you born again, would, would that make you, oh, I don't want to be, but Peter says, don't, don't be ashamed if you're suffering for that, for that name. My friends, P- Peter says, understand that suffering is valuable. It is a privilege given to you by God. You can think of it like oil. Sometimes we refer to oil as black gold, if you've ever heard that phrase before. To the naked eye, oil coming out of the ground, it looks ugly and it looks, it looks, it's, it's crude and murky. It doesn't look. And if you struck oil in your backyard, it would make a royal mess. But boy, you'd be happy, wouldn't you? You'd be thrilled. What a privilege, this, this black muck in your backyard, right? Because you know how valuable it really is. That's what Peter says. To suffer for the name of Christ, it is a privilege. It is priceless. It is valuable. It means the Spirit of Christ is leading you. And you're living a bold faith, so much so that others would see you like Christ. There's a third and final reason that Peter gives here. Number three, he tells us in verses 17 and 18. We should also rejoice because suffering for Christ is authenticating. Suffering for Christ, right, it's normal. He says it's a privilege, and then he says it is authenticating. Now, if you look at 17 and 18, let me just read them. Notice something odd about these two verses. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will be the outcome of the godless and the sinner? Now, do you notice what's odd there? Those two verses are just questions. They're just rhetorical questions, which means the answer is obvious. You're not supposed to answer it. You're supposed to think about it. You're supposed to assume what what are the implications of this. And so he says there, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Now, when we talk about judgment, we think of it as a future thing. But Peter says there's a sense in which judgment is already happening now for God's household. Now, I know that can be really confusing, going, why do Christians, why, why do we go through, through judgment? Well, remember, judgment is not one-dimensional. God's judgment can be punishment, but it can also be an act of purification. Right? Both are the result, and they come under the heading of judgment. Just like a parent would discipline their child, sometimes it's punitive, and sometimes it's formative. 
right? Both outcomes can come under the heading of discipline. The word judgment here has that idea. And he says he is doing this, notice verse 17, for the household of God. Back in chapter 2, he told us the household of God used to be the temple, but now those stones are not actual literal stones. They are spiritual stones, which are what? Are believers. Those are the ones who are building up the, the place of God, the house of God. It's the place where God dwells here on earth. I heard it once said that your home tells the story of who you are. Right? You live somewhere long enough, it starts to take on your personalities. If you're a, a neat freak, it shows up. If you're kind of messy, it kind of shows up. If you like, you know, garden variety or whatever it is, right? your home begins to reflect your values and the things that you care for. I'll never forget, there was a, some of you remember, you know Joel Rainey in our church. His parents, Dave and Marilyn, he was an elder before they moved away. The first time we went to their home, Rebecca and I, we weren't, I don't think we had kids. We went to their house for dinner one night, and we, we saw their house and had a great, great meal, great time. And we got in the car, and we're driving off, and I looked at Rebecca, and I said, did you see what I saw? She said, what? I said, they don't own a television. I had never met a human being in the 21st century. She goes, no, no, no. I said, no, I looked at the whole house. There wasn't a television anywhere. Well, that instantly told me something about their values. That told me something about like what they, right? Your home reflects that. Well, what's my point? My point is Peter says we are God's home, his household. And he uses suffering like a pressure washer to rip away the algae of sin. He is cleaning off the mold of pride and selfishness and independence that's deep down in all of us. Why? Because God is a neat freak. He is holy. And he expects his church to be holy. And so judgment begins in the household of God so that we as his house will reflect him so that we will show his values. So judgment is beginning now with us. And so Peter says, and that's why he says in verse 18, if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved. In other words, you don't jump from justification to glorification. Wouldn't that be great? You trust Christ, boom, glorification. It's not that way. We go from justification through sanctification then to glorification. That's what that verse means. It is with difficulty that we are being saved. That process is how God is growing us, and suffering is one of the tools that God uses in that process. And it's because he does that, it authenticates that we belong to him. It shows that he's actually doing this work in us so that we will better reflect him. So that's what he means judgment begins with us. What does he mean in the rest of the verse? What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? His point is, judgment for us is purifying, but judgment for those outside the household of God is not purifying, it's punishing. P Peter's saying, if Christians, watch this, if those who belong to Christ can suffer physical pain even now, and that is the pathway to salvation, what unimaginable horrors await those who reject the gospel. If it is with difficulty that we are being saved, then what is awaiting those who reject God and his purposes altogether? Peter says, take your pick. You can be judged by the world for 50 years, or you can be judged by God for eternity. 
Nobody opts out of either one. It's one or the other, he says. So he says, what will the outcome be? What is our outcome? Our outcome is suffering, then glory. For those that aren't believers, this is their outcome. Glory in whatever form it takes here on earth, and then suffering. If you're not a Christian, this is the closest you're ever going to get to heaven. Right now. This is it. And if you plan to reject the gospel in Christ, then then eat, drink, and be merry. Because when you die after this is the judgment. But my friends, you, you don't have to face that judgment. Christ has faced that judgment for all that will repent and believe in him. And he calls you to to turn from your sin and to trust in him even now to be saved and to know that he is the the means by which we are saved from the wrath of God. Peter says, verse 18, he's saying the same thing, that that, that those that are saved, it's difficult for being saved, but what is his point? His point is it's authenticating us. He's saying, listen, there's 7 billion people in the world, but those 7 billion people are in two groups. You're either in the household, which is suffering, then glory, or you're not in the household, which is glory, then suffering. And you're in one of those two groups. And if you're over here, and man, it really hurts because God is squeezing and pushing and poking and the pressure washer is just plowing through and you feel all of this. He says, rejoice. It's authenticating. It's validating that you're one of his children and that you're in the household. And so we can be thankful for that. Finally, in verse 19, Peter gives us one last thought. Number four, one last reason. He says, rejoice because suffering for Christ is a chance to trust. Suffering for Christ is also a chance to trust. Verse 19, he wraps it all up. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Again, Peter's quite clear. He's not talking about all suffering here. He's specifically talking about those who suffer according to the will of God. If you're suffering because you did something wrong, Peter says you deserve it. But if you're suffering because you're doing what's right and you don't deserve it, you can still rejoice because it is God's will. Listen, there is suffering that comes our way Listen, it passes God's inspection. He looks at it, he weighs it, he measures it, and he allows that fiery ordeal. Why? Because it's producing these things in us. And so he says we should, as a result, entrust ourselves to him. There's a better word for this. It's a banking word. It's it's to deposit. Right? What do you do with your paycheck? You deposit it in the bank. You, You ever realize how much trust is involved in the banking industry? If BB&T and Wells Fargo wanted to, you know, take us all to the cleaners, boy, they sure could. Because we trust them an awful lot, just giving them our life savings and our paycheck, right? It's a deposit. But why do we do that? Because we see that little symbol that says FDIC insured. We, we have this sense in which their reputation, there's something behind it. We know if I put my money in, I'm going to get my money back. Peter says, who has more integrity than God? Who has a better reputation than God? So you can trust him, even in the trials, even in the hardships. Why? Because he is a faithful creator. By the way, just the only time the New Testament calls God creator, this verse right here. Many times it says God created or or creates, but here's the only time he's called 
creator. Why does he say that? I think he's reminding us, watch this, that God is, is not only the creator of all things, he's also the creator over your suffering. He's the faithful creator over your fiery trials. And he's not going to put you somewhere that's going to burn you to a crisp, but only in that which will purify you. But you are called to trust him. And so Peter says we can rejoice because why? Because every trial that comes is a fresh opportunity, a brand new moment, a new season for faith. Forgive the King James here, but 2 Timothy 1, it's what Paul said for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've entrusted unto him until that day. That's what he's saying here. God is trustworthy. And every trial, every hardship is another opportunity to lean on him by faith. Some of you are old enough. Do you remember in the 90s, 80s, 90s, the gospel singer Andre Crouch. Remember the song he had called Through It All? That's exactly what this verse is. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Paul, P Peter says here, every new trial, every new suffering is a fresh opportunity to say, okay, God, I was saved by faith, and right now I'm going to be sanctified by faith. I'm going to trust you yet again. And in this we are following who? None other than Jesus himself. Peter already said back in chapter 2, verse 23, when Jesus was suffering, when he was reviled, he uttered no threats, but what? He kept entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. So not only do we suffer like Christ, watch this, Peter says, you also trust like Christ. You also have hope like Christ, and you follow in his steps. I mentioned Nero at the beginning, his persecution which began in 64 AD. Some of you may know it continued from that point forward for 200 years until Constantine came. Christians were basically outlaws all through that time. And guess what? Christians during that 200 years were mauled, martyred, beheaded, drowned, imprisoned. You name it, it happened to them. But guess what? It's 2021, and guess where the Roman Empire is? It's gone. And guess where the church is? We're still here. And we're still rejoicing. Because suffering is not the end of us. Suffering is the means by which God brings us to glory and so we can rejoice in suffering. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today and we thank you for how it, it challenges us because, Lord, this is easy to understand, but, Lord, we, we all confess, I myself first and foremost, this is not easy to do. And so, Father, we want to start by asking you to forgive us for being ashamed of the name of Christ. For maybe those moments when, like Peter, we've, our, our, our knees have buckled and our faith has been thin and we maybe denied you. Oh God, forgive us for that lack of courage. And like Peter, we pray, Lord, that you would restore us in your love, reassuring us that you are beloved, beloved, 
beloved. And that as a result, we would have that new courage to stand for Christ and to not be ashamed and even to rejoice in the hardships of life. May we do that for one another. May we pray for those around the world who are suffering. And Lord, may we think and consider the pathway of Christ as our own pathway too. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.